Welcome to Beyond the Tools, the podcast that helps contractors attract more leads, grow their business, and finally get off the tools. In each episode, you'll discover marketing tactics that work. You'll get actionable insights from other successful contractors and connect with experts to help you grow. I'm your host, Crystal Hobbs, owner of a social media agency that helps contractors attract and convert more leads. Get ready to take your business to the next level so you can finally enjoy the fruits of your hard labor. Ready? Let's go. Welcome back to Beyond the Tools. I had a brief hiatus there, but now I'm back with some fantastic interviews from some of the biggest heavyweights in the residential construction industry. Today's guest is no stranger if you're in the Canadian home building industry. Bob Deeks is the president of RDC Homes in Whistler, British Columbia in Canada. He founded the company in 1993, and since then they've seen some exponential growth. RDC Fine Homes is a multi-award winner. They're a homes-approved homes builder, and Bob himself is very involved in the industry. He's the past president of CHBA BC and is now heavily involved at a national level with the Canadian Home Builders Association, and that's how I first got connected with Bob. Bob knows this industry inside and out, and he shares some really incredible insights that will really apply to anybody who's in the residential construction industry. So in this interview, we talk about the future of sustainable building and how Bob and his team keep innovating and staying ahead of the curve. We also talk about how RDC Fine Homes attracts and retains A players in the business. And given the labor shortage, this is something that everybody needs to hear. And lastly, we also talk about the risk of relying on referrals, especially when it comes to retaining those employees. So Bob shares what he does instead to continuously attract new customers to his business. So without further ado, here's Bob Deeks. Hi, Bob. Thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, you're very welcome, Crystal. Thanks for having me. So I know over the years, I've heard your name a lot in the Canadian Home Builders Association world and the residential construction space. So I know that this episode is going to be a ton of value for our listeners. So Bob, I know you started in this industry or started on your own in 1993. And we were talking a little bit before how Sometimes this industry, it can be a bit slow to make changes. What do you think has been the most dramatic change you've seen during the time that you've been in this industry? I'd have to, I have to say the most dramatic change uh, has really been over the last six years, particularly in British Columbia. The province has adopted the BC Energy Step Code, which is really... Uh, forcing the industry to build more energy efficient houses. Um, and, and we see the national code uh, following along with its, its stepped approach to energy efficiency in, in uh, you know, a fairly similar fashion. You know, when you look at how we build houses up until 2010, we essentially were building houses in the same way we've been building for 40 years. And in the last five years, the industry here in British Columbia, as we see in other places in the United States and in Canada, is being driven to significantly change you know, how they build houses to, to make them more thermally efficient. 
Yeah. And I know we've had um, in previous episodes, like I just interviewed Curtis Mercer from KMP Contracting as an example and talking about energy efficiency and how important it is, but also that it's not necessarily something that customers are seeking. So what have you learned about selling energy efficiency? Yeah, it's a really good point because sometimes it's hard for people to really grasp the significance of an energy efficient house. They understand um, that it'll save them some money on their energy bills. But in Canada, particularly in most provinces, energy is pretty cheap. And so, you know, those those real savings sometimes for people don't really add up to, you know, a perception of great value. I learned a long time ago to sell the side bent, you know, what, what to some degree are the side benefits of building a more thermally efficient house. Um, and so one of the things um, that we, we really understand is that when we build a thermally efficient house, we need to uh, make sure that we have a balanced ventilation system because we need to maintain and control the humidity within the house. And so what does that do for people? Well, it, it makes the air inside the house cleaner. It doesn't smell, you know, those cooking smells or, you know, those pet smells or all those smells that we create from living in an enclosed space. We get rid of all those. Uh, and at the same time, of course, we exchange that energy and that conditioned air uh, as it leaves the building to precondition the air that's coming in. So we get you know, we get some thermal performance out of that, but some people refer to as the fresh air delivery system where, you know, in the industry would refer to as a heat recovery ventilator or an energy recovery ventilator. When we build well-insulated airtight buildings, um, we create an opportunity where we, uh, we lose that stratification of air within the building that changes the temperature. So, you know, the temperature on the bottom floor can be the same temperature as it is on the top floor. And then when we model houses, we can make sure that the heating system is actually sized correctly for the individual rooms and the heat loss calculation of the house. Um, you know, the industry, you know, I've heard heating contractors identify their strategy uh, for sizing heating equipment um, is either, you know, it can be just based on square footage. If it's a 2,200 square foot house, you get a furnace this big. If it's a 3,500 square foot house, you get a heating system that's big, which, which has no relation to the volume of the house, you know, how high the ceilings are, how, you know, the, the orientation of the windows or how, how big the individual rooms might be. And so when we look to design and build an energy efficient house, we're going to get that better indoor air quality. We're going to get that right size mechanical room. We're going to get better thermal comfort. We're going to put in really good windows. And, uh, you know, my analogy was, is that if you're um, in St. John's in the middle of the wintertime and there's a gale coming off the ocean that's minus 20 out and you're the poor sucker who has to sit with your back to the window, um, you know, code minimum window, the likelihood is you're going to feel a draft or a chill. And it's just really the inside surface of that glass is going to be so cold that it actually sucks the heat off your body and it makes it feel like there's a draft there. Whereas we spend a little bit more money and we get a really good triple glazed window and all of a sudden, the inside surface of that glass is a lot warmer, and you don't feel a chill when you're sitting up against it. Um, and so really uh, selling those features of uh, better comfort, better indoor air quality, healthy home, more durable, um, that's what sells people on high-performance houses. And then the icing on the cake, of course, is, is that their energy bills are a little bit lower. We talked about the analogy with luxury automobiles and the fact that people don't bat an eyelid on buying a luxury automobile that loses its value the moment it's driven off the lot. Um, and there is no ROI on, on 
buying a luxury automobile. Um, and so why would you use that metric when you consider uh, the options that you might have to have that high performance house. Mm. So do you find that you do have to have a lot of those conversations with your customers and like educate them or are most of the people that are coming to you, they're pretty well bought into that concept already? We get a mix. Uh, our brand is uh, very focused on sustainable, energy efficient, high performance housing. And so we certainly have people approach us who are very knowledgeable about this, you know, whether they're looking for net zero or passive house, they've done their research and they understand some of those benefits. But we also get, you know, people who come to us uh, based on a brand promise of customer service and uh, high quality work who really don't understand the benefits of high performance in any way. And so, you know, I'll walk them through why we would recommend certain things. Of course, you know, that market niche is quickly been taken away from us as the province is mandating stricter energy requirements through the BC Energy Step Code. And so trying to explain to people why you need an airtight house or why you need triple pane windows is no longer, you know, my responsibility because when we model the house and we know we have to meet in many places now in the quarter that we build in, we're getting driven to step four of the BC Energy Step Code, which for a lot of our projects is actually net zero ready. So you know, there's a, there's no pushback from clients. It's like this is these are the lowest cost solutions that we can offer yeah. to you, so that you can meet the energy standard that has now been codified. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I know we were chatting a little bit about you know sustainable building. What do you see is the future for green building? Yeah, that's a great question. As people may know, the Canadian government has uh, established a goal of being net zero carbon by 2050. And so, you know, there's an enormous amount of focus right now on reducing carbon emissions through energy efficiency. But what we're really starting to understand is that a significant amount of carbon is generated through the construction of houses. And so what we really need to start to turn our attention to is how do we select materials for the construction process that are low in embodied carbon, the amount of carbon emissions that were uh, used to actually fabricate that material before it got delivered to the site. So, you know, concrete and steel have very high embodied carbon. Wood actually is a carbon sink. So wood locks in that carbon for the life cycle of that piece of wood and can actually be used to offset the embodied carbon and other materials, whether it's steel, whether it's concrete, whether it's foamed plastic for insulation, vinyl windows, and all those sorts of things. And so, you know, for us, it's really looking at the materials that we're using today and what are the alternative materials that we could consider that would help to reduce that embodied carbon in the buildings that we build because uh, the future is going to, you know, we're always going to have this focus on energy efficiency so that we can reduce the emissions from the buildings we build. But we are going to see a shift uh, at a government level um, and we're going to see regulation around, you know, whether it's carbon budget a carbon, you know, and a, or a carbon intensity metric that is coming. Uh, and I think that, you know, the industry needs to start to understand that this is the next evolution and this will become codified uh, in some way or some form. So, you know, my advice to the industry is start to understand this and start to 
consider how you might do things differently in the future so that you're prepared as regulations get rolled out because it's coming and there's going to be no way to avoid it. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, it's pretty obvious that you've really kept ahead of the curve kind of every step through your business. How is it that you have kept innovating and, you know, how are you staying up to date on everything that's coming? It's uh, a good question. So it, when I um, joined the home builders, I think around 2003, uh, there was a group of uh, my colleagues locally here who were starting our home building chapter and, you know, everybody was doing it. So I was like, well, if everybody's doing it, then I should do it too. And understanding, you know, where I build is not maybe so dissimilar from, you know, the builders on the rock. In those days, we were entirely building in a quite small community that was really fairly remote from the hub of residential construction in Canada. And so, you know, we were pretty isolated and uh, it was hard to learn new things. And I quickly discovered when I joined the home builders that there was this resource of information on housing technology, building science, uh, and all these things that would enable me to build a better house. And in those days, just starting my business up, I was very aware uh, that I needed to find, you know, our own market niche. I think I understood pretty quickly that competing on price was not a great way to build a business. We needed to build a business model uh, based on a better built home or a better renovated home. And so the home builders really created this opportunity for learning. Uh, and, you know, some of it was, you know, my innate sense of what was right. Uh, we started hand demolishing buildings very early on because I looked at buildings that were being removed that had a lot of good materials in them. And I just didn't understand why we should put that into landfill. So we started hand demobilizing buildings early on. And then, you know, in part through the education I was getting through my colleagues at CHBA and in part just being curious, uh, started to look at, you know, what could we do that would differentiate ourselves um, from the rest of industry. And then as uh, a member of the home builders, the home builders kicks up lots of opportunity if you're willing to spend the time to take advantage of it. So, you know, I ended up as president of my local chapter and then that created an opportunity to join the executive board provincially. And then that kicked up opportunities to join the national association through the committees. And every time I agreed to go and volunteer in these places, all of a sudden I realized you know, while I was volunteering some of my time, the education that I was getting as a result of those volunteer efforts was exponential to the time I was given up. And so, you know, I've agreed to do a lot of things and people sometimes wonder, you know, why would I spend so much time you know, volunteering? But my business today would not be what it is in any way if I hadn't had those opportunities. You know, I was the head of the technical research committee provincially. And I was head of the technical research committee nationally. You know, I've sat on national code development, been at the table provincially to develop all kinds of new initiatives and codes from new seismic codes to being at the table for the very first meeting for the BC Energy Step Code. And so that has kept my company, you know, at the forefront of all these things because I'm at the table. Um, and so, you know, a message to anybody who's listening to the podcast is when there's an opportunity to join professional association, it may be a little bit difficult to see what the upfront benefit could be in the short term, but there are going to be enormous benefits that will be offered 
if you just choose to take advantage of them. And any time that you spend volunteering for your industry is going to pay you back in spades uh, as a result of the learning outcomes that you get from participating on those committees and councils and just through the uh, interaction you get from meeting your peers from across the country. So that, you know, people in Whistler, British, you know, for us in Whistler, British Columbia, we, we get an opportunity to know, you know, what are the struggles and what are the lessons learned from St. John's and, you know, what are the guys in Ontario doing? And that just makes us a better builder. So, you know, that, that really helped the evolution of RDC because, you know, it introduced me to the Built Green Standard, uh, which was the first labeling standard that we engaged with. And it was, you know, this idea of I could have a third party come in and actually measure what we did. So I'm not just telling you what I'm going to give you. I'm going to tell you what we're going to build for you. And then I'm going to bring in a third party who's going to validate that we did what we said we were going to do. And that's not only important for my customers, but it was really important for my staff because, you know, you're out there doing a bunch of things and you never actually know if it's working or not. But as soon as you get that third party validation, then your staff can take real pride in understanding that actually we are building a better house because I had, you know, uh, our energy advisor, Capital Home Energy came in and they did a blower test and said, great job, you guys, you got down under 1.5 air changes um, or, you know, awesome job, you guys you have a house that is built to a standard of energy efficiency that's in the top two percentile of the entire country. And so there's an enormous pride in ownership, not only for me as the business owner, but I started to recognize that pride of ownership, you know, went all the way down to the apprentice carpenters who were working on site. And I guess as a side benefit of that, you know, most of the staff that we have today, uh, they seek us out because they're excited to work with a company that is at the forefront of modern residential construction. And that's what they want to learn. So, you know, it's easy for us to get our A players because they see us as an A player in the marketplace. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point, because I know I hear from so many contractors in the industry that attracting and retaining people is is a big challenge. And I know in Whistler in particular, you know, you've got a lot of shortage because it's difficult to find a place to live there. So yeah, I guess what are some other ways that you've attracted and kept some of your That's a great question. So one of the things that we've been very committed and focused to is job site safety. Sometime in the, I don't know, mid 2000s, British Columbia adopted uh, the certificate of recognition standard for workplace safety and it was made available to it started i think on the roads uh, building side they're the first guys who sort of brought this to the table to help drive more engaged safety culture within that industry so sometime around 2006 i think the core certification was made available to construction you know i was like what this is a great opportunity so i had one of my guys was interested in safety so uh, we sent him and got him educated and certified as a, as a core guy. And RDC became, I think, the first small residential construction industry to become core certified. Uh, and it was interesting when uh, he was in those first seminars, because I think you know, the first course was a three-day course. He had to go to Vancouver, sit in the classroom, learn all about core certification. Uh, and so the instructor asked everybody in the room to just you know let everybody know who they were, who did they work for. And... You know, that there's uh, guys there from Cuit and PCL and, you know, all the, the big 
construction companies in the province. And then my guy, whose name has just escaped me, you know, he's like, well, I, I work for RDC Fine Homes in Whistler, British Columbia, and, and we have 15 staff. And the instructor actually turned to him and said, what, what are you doing here? It doesn't make sense. You know, this, this is a standard that really is intended for much bigger companies. And uh, his response was, well, you know, my employer really believes in a better standard for site safety. And so he wants us to be core certified. And the guy was like, mm, okay, fill your boots. And so over the years, we've put an enormous amount of effort into a safety culture. So trying to build a team that believes in safety because they understand how important it is for everybody to go home at the end of the day in the same condition that they arrived at work. You know, the staff at RDC don't follow safety because it's enforced. They follow safety because they believe in it. Um, So interestingly, uh, for us in the last 14 months, um, we have, I mean, I just, keep my fingers crossed. We have avoided uh, any infection from COVID. There's not a single subtrade that has picked up a COVID infection from any of our sites. All of our staff have remained healthy. Uh, I think that's been an enormous accomplishment for us because we've seen uh, our colleagues and our subtrades get pulled down repeatedly as a result of COVID infections. And this comes back to our safety culture. When we mandated mask wearing, there was no pushback. Um, You could go to any of our sites at any time unannounced. Um, And if there were two guys who were anywhere in close contact, uh, they had their masks on. And today you go to one of our sites and there is going to be a guy working in a corner all by himself. I I guarantee you he's got his mask on. Um, And so that that's a safety culture at work. And so we actually coming back to the, you know, your question, we get people who seek us out as a place to work because they know that this is a safe place. Um, and that they will never be put at risk, you know, whether it's working at heights uh, or whether it's COVID related or whether it's, you know, core and concrete, you know, all these things can have serious impacts on your short and long-term health. They know that we're going to manage that in the best way we can. Um, we've maintained our core certification now, I think for over 14 years, we spent a lot of money at it, but it helps us engage a players and it helps us keep them. I, that, that, I think that's one of the most important things for us is creating that safe, safe workplace. And it really ties our staff to us. Yeah, that's awesome. And I hope any builders or contracting companies listening are also, you know, putting that same emphasis on safety because it, it's, you know, the basic level of care for your employees and making sure that they feel protected and valued. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, everybody talks about the cost of safety. And one of the things that we actually were talking about fairly recently is just the fact that when people are working in a risky environment, if they feel safe, um, their ability to work confidently and quickly increases enormously. So while people will perceive that there is a savings to shortcut on safety because safety is expensive, What I don't think people understand is that when you put somebody in a risky position, their ability to work effectively is decreased. And so I just would encourage everybody to consider that. And I, you know, I, you know, my experience with that um, and a story that my staff have heard when I was a young carpenter, uh, we were putting a roof on a house in November. We showed up one morning. um, It had rained. Then it had gotten really cold. 
and we were working at enormous height. We were building this house overlooking a ravine. And so the front end of the house was about 60 feet above the ground and everything was covered in ice. We had no fall protection uh, on that site. I'd never put on a harness. And the message that we got from the foreman that morning is, uh, you ass holes, <laughs> sorry, uh, need to be careful up there because uh, I don't want anybody getting killed on my site today, right? So safety was a threat that, you know, you better be careful because, you know, it was going to be an inconvenience to him if one of us got killed. And I can remember skating around on these big glue lamp purlins that were covered in ice as I walked, as we manhandled these two by 12 rafters into place, everything covered in ice on a slippery surface, 60 feet above the ground. And I always remember that. And I was like, uh, yeah, I mean, I would have been about 28. Now you're somewhat feel invincible. You got a chip on your shoulder. Somebody presents a challenge to you. Fuck Yeah, I can do that. I'm going to do that. I'm not going to get killed today. Right. Like I'm, I am I am a highly skilled, competent person. Uh, I'm athletic. I'm not going to fall off. Nobody fell off. But, you know, my memory of that was I will never, ever put any of my stuff in a position like that. And, you know, you know how much work we got? We got virtually nothing done that day because, you know, while we had this bravado about, you know, we're going to go up and do it, I think inherently we were terrified, right? Nobody's ever going to admit that. <laughs> yeah. But that still exists today in some places where, you know, young guys are being put in positions of enormous risk because, unfortunately, their employer doesn't understand, isn't willing to pay for, isn't prepared to run a safe job site. And we see, I see it all the time around here, unfortunately. So work safe, everybody. Yeah, absolutely. So for RDC Find Homes now, I mean, you've obviously really distinguished yourself in the marketplace as leaders in high performance homes. You've built out and attracted this amazing team. How have you attracted customers? Uh, so that's a good question. You know, I think a large part of our industry uh, exists on word of mouth, which is great. 10 years ago, my vision for RDC is I wanted to grow the company. I wanted to build a company that has lasting value. Uh, and I recognized that just, you know, waiting on word of mouth was incredibly risky. We have anywhere from 35 to 50 staff. Uh, and I take the responsibility to make sure that everybody has a paycheck seriously. We're not an employer that brings you on for six months and then lays you off. If you come to work for us, we're making a long-term commitment to you um, to provide that paycheck on a regular basis. We try really hard not to put people on temporary layoffs. It sometimes happens. And so I understood that, you know, we needed a pipeline of leads that could create the certainty for employment for our staff over the long haul. And in fact, our, our goal right now, and we haven't managed to achieve it is we want to have our, we want to have our schedule filled 24 months out. Uh, we're at about 12 months. So that, and that's a great place for us to be because, you know, four or five years ago, you know, we were lucky if we could see a full schedule six months out for all of our staff. So I think right now, you know, I think we could commit to our staff and say, look, we've got contracts in place that will keep everybody gainfully employed for 12 months. So that's awesome. So how do you do that? Word of mouth doesn't, isn't enough to create that consistent flow of jobs. And so 
I started dabbling. So, you know, one thing I understood is you need a good website. So we've, you know, we've refreshed our website continually uh, since the first website I would have built in, I guess, the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and I think every website platform we've built has gotten better and better, which is great. But at around 2010, I was really curious about, you know, the social media, Facebook, Twitter. So I think one Sunday afternoon uh, in 2010, when the economy was really not doing well out here, uh, and, you know, there were not a lot of leads on the horizon, and I was probably freaking out about, you know, where was the next, next job coming from? How was I going to keep everybody employed? That used to create an enormous amount of stress for me. It was, you know, how am I going to keep everybody, you know, all these people that I spent a lot of money and time training and have gotten to know, how am I going to keep everybody employed? So I set up a Facebook account and a Twitter account and started down that road of posting, try and build a following. And we went through, you know, three or four years without a lot of sophistication. Um, we had some summer students who came in uh, that we supported. And uh, I was like, oh, well, you're a young person. You understand social media. So I'll, you know, I'll make this part of your daily task. And eventually, uh, I had a great guy who worked for me for years as kind of an operations manager. He was really interested in that. And so, you know, he dedicated a portion of his day every day looking for interesting content to post and we started to grow <clears throat> our social media network and then about six years ago uh, I formally hired someone my, my niece had been working for us for about a year and a half and she decided to move back to Ontario uh, and she'd been doing a great job on this and I was like there's no way we can replace Margaret internally so I'm gonna have to bite the bullet and go hire somebody so we hired a local organization called custom fit communications and we brought them in to really manage uh, our social media platforms. So they do a certain amount of the posting. Um, they do our video production. They manage the optimization of our website and all that stuff. And we've so I've set some you know pretty aggressive goals for us in terms of you know building our brand online. We we set targets uh, for lead generation and lead conversion. It's a core part of my everyday responsibility. Um, and it's something that's, you know, the first thing I look at every day is, uh, you know, how are we doing on our social media platforms? You know, how are the posts doing? Constantly looking for better ways to do this. Of course, we are a Homes Approved Homes partner, part of Mike Homes Approved Builder Network. And we get enormous support from them. So they, they're always sort of pushing us from behind on the content that um, we promote. Interestingly, I was on a Twitter chat with them yesterday. And those things are like rocket fuel for our Twitter account. Um, I haven't been paying much attention to Twitter this month. Um, and, and social media, like if you post consistently and you have some decent content, then your network grows. Um, you know, I've been super busy. Uh, I've been trying to focus a little more on Instagram. So Twitter's been getting a little ignored. And I noticed, you know, we're at whatever, the, the 13th of the month yesterday. And I was like, crap, you know, I, I haven't been posting much on Twitter and so I think we had about 4,000 interactions on Twitter so far this month. And I was like, man, I've got to really put a little more effort into this. And then we had a Twitter chat on electrical safety. It was electrical safety month yesterday, and I always participate in those. So our interactions uh, went from 4,000 yesterday morning to 21,000 this morning in one day, right? And that's just because – and this you know, it comes back to you know, looking what are the opportunities that are out there for you as a business – so it took, I spent about half an, I dedicated, it was a one hour Twitter chat. I found half an hour and put a hundred percent of my attention into that Twitter chat and grew our engagement on Twitter by five times in half an hour. So, you know, great opportunity to do that. 
Uh, so, you know, those are things that people need to look out for. And you don't have to spend a lot of money and a lot of time um, to drive your social media platforms, but you do need to create engaged content. I mean, you, you know, you noted that you've watched our videos. Um, the only thing I invested in was a, a gimbaled handheld thing that my phone clips into because my staff told me that my videos were making them seasick. <laughs> uh, and so, and then, and then, yeah, because you can't, no matter how still you think your hands are, when you look at the video, it's always shifting around a little bit. And then custom fit, uh, you know, I send the raw footage to them and, and custom fit spends, some, you know, they, they do spend some time uh, putting in the, the voice to text um, and putting in some captions. But those are, those are really low cost videos and, they, they track really well. We boost them on YouTube and Facebook and, uh, you know, spend a hundred bucks boosting on YouTube and we'll get anywhere from 1500 to 3000 views and people watch about half the video. We're, we're starting to, I wasn't paying attention to YouTube until about six months ago and we're starting to see our YouTube followers and subscribers, you know, really starting to kick up now. So, you know, we're putting a lot of um, emphasis uh, on those platforms to drive people back to the website to generate leads from people who have no affiliation with us. And we're getting, you know, I think last month I had 21 leads that came through. Um, and so it allows us to pick and choose a little bit too. You know, we, we can be, the one thing I've learned is uh, when you get a new lead in the door, you got to be brutally honest about what you can do and what their budget is. And, you know, is this a good fit right out of the gate when you're getting one lead a month? can be very difficult to be brutally honest and you know it's like having a fish on a very light fishing line and you know you're really really careful to see where that can go because that's the one lead that you got right when you have 21 leads then everybody's in a better place you know because a lot of those clients are they're looking for something different than what rdc provides so we can wash through that and um you know that that's what's um enabled us right now to have you know, 12 months of work for nearly 40 odd people uh, in place, which is a really secure thing for me, but it gives an enormous amount of security to the team because we message that, you know, every week we tell the team where we're at, you know, what do we got on the books? What are we doing for lead generation? What's our conversion rate? Everybody's connected to that. And so when they go home, there's lots of things that everybody has to worry about today, but nobody on my team is worried about whether they have a job next week. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, I feel like, Bob, a lot of builders kind of take for granted that they need to put an effort into generating business. So that's amazing to hear what your experience has been and your focus on making sure that you do have those leads coming in consistently. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the one thing that does keep me awake at night is, you know, the construction economy is always doing this, right? And And we're definitely... You know, my experience has been is about every 10 years, things really flatline and we're, we're at that 10 year period now. So I understand that for us, you know, we want to work hard to be a leader online so that, you know, when the industry shrinks and it will, that, you know, we're top of mind for anybody because there's always people who want to build new houses and there's always people who want to renovate and, you know, following some of the really successful builders in the U.S., you know, at the, at the depths of the 20, 2009, 2010, you know, depression in the U.S., there were still builders down there who were doing quite well, right? Because they were the first choice. And so, you know, for us, we really want to aggressively 
stand out as as the first choice because when the economy flatlines, you know, my commitment to my team is I want to keep everybody employed. Awesome. Well, Bob, I feel like we had packed so much into this interview and I can't wait for people to hear it. And I could talk to you all day, um, but I know, you know, we're at the end of our time here. So for anybody listening, how can they connect with you and learn more about RDC Fine Homes? Uh, they can connect easily through our website, uh, through my LinkedIn profile. Uh, they can direct message me on Twitter, on Instagram. Um, Facebook is not a great place to connect directly with me, but those other platforms, I look at them and I just find them easier to engage with. Uh, so connect with me on LinkedIn and send me a direct message, uh, direct, yeah, direct message me on, on Twitter. Those two really stand out. You know, people can email me directly at bob at rdcfinehomes.com as well if they want. And I do try to respond uh, to anybody who has a question. Perfect. All right. And we'll put all those links in our show notes as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bob, for being on the show. That was really fun. Thanks very much, Crystal. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Beyond the Tools. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love if you could also share this episode with a fellow contractor who is ready to get off the tools and grow their business. And if you want more leads, sign up for our email list at reflectivemarketing.com, where we share weekly marketing insights that you can't get anywhere else. I'm Crystal Hobbs, and I hope you'll join me on the next episode of Beyond the Tools. See you next time.